0: Why You'll Never Be a Rapper, a memoir mixtape by Josh What's-His-Name-Lefkowitz, forward by Fonte Coleman.
1: From the moment me and Josh Lefkowitz agreed that the sleeper jam of Blueprint 2 was fuck all night, I knew I had found a friend. The year was 2002. Josh and I were two retail workers on our lunch break at South Point Mall. Him, a struggle rapper without a deal, and me, a struggle rapper with one. We spent our days discussing the rap game at length, armchair quarterbacking our way through every era from the Juice Crew to Rockefeller. Analyzing our own careers, however, proved to be much more difficult. Back then, if you had asked me to name the next rapper that would make it out of our hometown of Durham, North Carolina, I would have bet my entire belt's check on Josh, a.k.a. what's-his-name. He was knowledgeable about the history and culture of emceeing, had the hard-earned respect of his peers, could rap as good as any emcee I'd ever known, plus he had the cheat code of a lifetime. He was white. Matter of fact, he was Jewish. That's like white prime with free shipping. How could he lose? The answers to that question are as candid and unrelenting as the stories that you'll hear in this book. My 11th grade English professor once told me that you can learn just as much from a bad book as you can from a good one. And I think that also applies to the lives of others. Not that my buddy Josh has had a bad life by any stretch. I just think that people are more likely to learn from a dream deferred than they are from a success story. After all, it's easy to dramatize the hunt after dinner's already on the table. Although I've been fortunate to have a successful career and work with artists I idolize, I still feel like I have more in common with Josh and his story than I do with most of my industry friends. There's always comfort in having that one person in your life to confirm that you're not crazy for thinking the way you do. Nearly 20 years later, we're still the same guys on our lunch break shooting the shit over bad Chinese in the food court. The back-and-forth rap slander of our text messages would make Waldorf and Statler proud, which is why news of Josh's exit from the game a few years ago didn't surprise me at all. The music business is one cruel, unforgiving bitch. When one of your friends decides to call it quits, there's no sigh of disappointment, only a sigh of relief, like, finally! One of us had enough courage to leave this sadomasochistic shit alone and live life as a functional human being. Congrats! Even if you've made it in your profession, a lot of the stories within these pages will sound uncomfortably familiar. There are no magic bullets, no self-help platitudes or easy resolutions, Just tales of regrets, misfires, half measures, and stolen victories from a guy that's just trying to figure it out. I mean, aren't we all? Chapter 1
0: I was born and raised in Durham, North Carolina. Like most rappers, my parents were New York Jews who moved down south for a great career opportunity for my father and a better life for their children. Actually, of course, my childhood started out quite unlike most rappers. The neighborhood my siblings and I grew up in was a middle to upper middle class, mostly white neighborhood in the late 70s that abruptly expanded into a middle class, mostly black neighborhood by the time I started school in the early 80s. That's when the soundtrack to my life started. That's when I discovered hip hop. Some called it Forest Edge. Others called it Hope Valley Forest. It was where I learned to play basketball, rode BMX bikes through the woods, and had WWF-style wrestling matches on the trampoline down the street from my house. It was your typical, sidewalk-free North Carolina neighborhood that usually smelled like fresh-cut grass and was lined with pine trees that seemed to touch the clouds. I was a nice kid, so I found it easy to make friends, and from a young age, I was fascinated with other people, what I could learn from them, and what their interests were. My siblings were much older than I was, so I rode bus 92 mostly by myself every day to and from Pearsontown Elementary. It was a quaint, brick school in the southwest section of Durham, which meant that like Forest Edge, it was mostly black. I never remember any racial tension as a kid. Maybe I was naive or maybe I was too young to have realized it, but in my mind, it was a pretty harmonious place. When you're a Jew in the South, you're just called white. So though I was usually just another pale face in the crowd, my religion would make me stick out on occasion. On Passover, for instance, the turkey on matzah sandwich I'd pull out of my lunch bag made me an outcast. And as a kid, there's nothing like having to justify the contents of your lunch with a discussion on religion. Oh, you're Jewish, they'd say. That means you're black. To this day, I can't make sense of that notion, but I heard it enough times from enough people to make me feel like somehow it was a thing. Mostly it made me feel like I might have something in common with the black kids, even if our skin didn't match. I thought maybe the black parents believed the Jews were okay because the KKK hated us as much as them. I was fine with that. Especially after being made to feel like even more of a weirdo around the wasps that made up the other 50% of the student body. Those kids didn't understand why I went to church on Friday and Saturday instead of Sunday like them, or why my parents weren't members of a country club. When I was 8, I met John. He was 11 years old, and as far as I was concerned, he was the coolest kid in school. He was incredibly athletic, good at every sport, and wore black and white Adidas Sambas every day. We were young, but girls had already started taking an interest in John, and this was just starting to make sense to me. He rode my bus and lived just up the street from me on the corner of Brighton and Hope Valley Road. His swagger alone gave me a feeling that I could learn something from him, so when given the opportunity, I hung out with him as much as I could. John's older brother Brent was six years older than me and my sister Mara's age. He fancied himself a DJ, though I never once heard a tale about him actually DJing anything. But in he and John's bedroom was a full setup. Two turntables, a mixer, speakers, large headphones, and a few red milk crates full of records. It was enough for me to believe that he was an actual DJ, and John's obsession with touching the equipment when Brent wasn't around to yell at him was enough to intrigue me all the more. John was a great friend, but like many prepubescent younger siblings, he was kind of a shitty brother, always stealing Brent's things without asking. And one day, this worked in my favor. What's this? I asked him it's a tape this is the age remember when kids often restrict their responses to the obvious i know what's on it some music you'll like it i will i asked yeah you will definitely it's rap okay you know about that he asked yeah i replied sounding unsure he looked unsure yeah of course i said good because this tape right here is fresh i didn't know how to respond You know what fresh means, he asked. No, I said. (laughs) It means cool, John said. I had to maneuver between proving I was cool and getting the information from him that I clearly needed. You cool, he asked. What, I said. Are you cool? Yeah, I replied. You sure, he asked. Yeah, I shouted, pretending to be confident. You'll love this then. John had said the magic word. I didn't understand half of what he was talking about, but I knew cool. I knew everything about cool. The way it looked, the way it sounded, even how girls reacted to it. I had no idea what rap music was, but John didn't need to know that. If he thought it was cool, then in my mind, it probably was. Music is subjective, but when you're too young to have an opinion about what you like and dislike, you're prone to enjoy music played by people you admire. Initially, that's your parents, but then it's your friends. I wanted so desperately to be like John that giving that tape a listen became a priority. And once my ears were introduced to the likes of Dougie Fresh and the Get Fresh crew, Run DMC, The Fat Boys, Curtis Blow, UTFO, The Real Roxanne, and Mixmaster G and the Turntable Orchestra, something in my head clicked. This wasn't the Barry Manilow and Neil Diamond that my parents played on The Living Room Record Player, this was something different, something on my own. The rhythm of the beats felt like a full body massage. And the way the rappers crafted their voices to go up and down where necessary sounded like the most perfect poetry I had ever heard. I had nothing in common with those behind the music, yet it felt like me. I listened over and over again until I could feel it in my soul, and the next day at John's house, he showed me more. We sat on Brent's unmade twin bed, hypnotized by the music, praying he wouldn't walk in and beat us up for playing with his stuff. I flipped through record after record, studying the way the rappers dressed. They were Adidas sweatsuits, custom leather jackets, Kangol hats, kazal glasses, four fingered rings and fat gold rope chains. My eyes lit up. They weren't musicians to me. I went to a Genesis concert in the Dean Dome a few months prior and they didn't dress like this. These were superheroes, my superheroes. And though I didn't know it, this was hip hop culture in its purest form. Rap wasn't something I went looking for, it was something that found me. Not because I wanted it to, but because it was supposed to. This was the first day of the rest of my life.